Butter, how you doing, Coaster? Uh, great, Jack. Always great talking with you, especially revolving around baseball. And think back to our My American Legion days when we first met. Who'd have thought that 30-some years now we're celebrating 25 years of Red Hawks baseball? So, I mean, really, right? Uh, it's amazing. When you were in high school and I was young once calling a Legion game, going, boy, this kid can hit. See, and you were still working at Q98. I was back. Yeah, I was back at like the old, the old channel there, doing rock radio, and and, uh, and I, I see that we're in a room now, you know, and you're represented here, Zach Panpraise. I just mentioned Zach. He's got a there's a jersey behind us over there. And does it come flushing back, or do are you one of those athletes that and pros that that don't want to see that just yet? You're not that far removed from playing, so you don't really want to see the his, history yet. No, I love seeing the nostalgia of Red Hawks baseball or Major League Baseball. It's like when I look back to 1996, 97, 98, 99, the four years I played, I look at the names of like Chad Akers and John and Anna. I know this is hard to believe, but I, I put them at the same level as uh, Chase Utley and uh, Jimmy Rollins and Cole Hamels. Uh, obviously, the world doesn't know them as, as much as, you know, like a Major League superstar. But for me... When I played, Daryl Motley was essentially uh, Chase Utley to me. Uh, Johnny Knott. I mean, who can? If you're a fan in 1996, and uh, the way uh, Radio Rick would announce his name, and the fans would get into it, and all that <laughs> stuff, it was. It's pretty incredible to think back in those days. You know, once again, Johnny Knott, Chad Akers. The list goes on. Uh, Justin Fletchock. Uh, the the names I remember just fighting to try to get on the team in 1996. Right. I remember the first day when I was signed and I wasn't supposed to make the team. I was basically on this version of the show with Roger Degerman in those days. <laughs> right. And I drove around that. and I drove around my job. I drove around and delivered computers all day and I listened to the Roger Degerman that show every day. And so when I was on that show, I felt like a superstar. And now here we are, you and me here, talking. Here we about, are. But, but I mean, so it was like. You look at how far we've all come since then, it's pretty amazing how far Red Hawks baseball has come, and I couldn't be happier to be a part of the team again the last two seasons and and moving forward. it's. Uh, I think we always knew that I was going to be back in a Red Hawks uniform some, at some point some in fashion. some regard, so it's uh, uh, being here this coming up here for the 25th season it's uh, definitely a great thing we are broadcasting live from newman outdoor field and we'll have you and you might almost have to eat that mic a little bit more chris because people want to hear you on that uh, chat will do that for you too just put it in there matt wow matt matt was a matt has been a ground screw you've been on the ground screw you have been a season ticket holder as a as a as a small children child with your parents and, and now you're the general manager of this team there's a, there's a lot of full circles going on uh, around here but yeah i mean i i have vivid memories of opening day at jack williams yeah you yeah know, a I, lot of people that that could be a little trivia question it wasn't they didn't, and and newman wasn't newman then nope, either no nope. but i mean the nest at that point and and looking back at you know watching coast play at that point i was a catcher I, you know i'm watching this guy going well, maybe if I do that, maybe if I do that, yeah. and, and knowing it's eventually going to lead into post two baseball, and it's a really weird, full circle sort of situation this it, year. It's great, Chris Coast. You know, it, I, it it is strange, and and it shouldn't be strange. You know, we on a weekly basis, we shouldn't be shocked. You know, I'm from Wilson, North Dakota. You know, Phil Jackson was from Williston, and I didn't really appreciate that until you know he was coaching Michael Jordan, and it, like a bell went off going. This guy grew up in the same little town in North Dakota and didn't really, you know, look back at it. You know, you can look at Lute Olson and Dale Brown and, and all these names that have gotten. So we've had these. Did you ever, Chris, when you were with the Phillies, stop and think for a second, just allow yourself a second hotel room, bus ride after a game going, you know, a couple of years ago I was 
I was an independent baseball playing in. Did that ever, or did you not? Did that was not a conscious thing at the time that you were with the Phillies. I, almost on a daily basis, I, I thought of things like that. The amount of times when I'd go to a new ballpark or, or a ballpark for the first time. We were talking about Dodger Stadium, and I mean, the first time I went to Dodger Stadium, I went and sat out in the bullpen and looked at the ballpark from a different angle. Fenway Park. I made sure that I hit in batting practice. I hit some line drives up against that, uh, <laughs> the that monster. monster. You know, think there there wasn't a day, even in my fourth and fifth year. And the reason why is I knew it wasn't going to last forever. I was already pretty old when I got to the major league, so. Uh, I, I made sure it never became normal uh, at the same time as much as I respected my teammates and my opponents and I was facing John Smoltz, future Hall of Famer, Greg Maddox, and so on and so forth. Homered off of both of those guys, by the way. I would have brought that uh, up if Chris wouldn't have. <laughs> I, I, in my head, I was going, there's, there's some, yeah. something Glavin common too. about I can't, this. I can't leave Tommy, Tom you, you homered against Glavin, true, yeah. Smoltz, and Maddox? Yeah, so for me, I, I yeah. made sure I never let the life become normal. And so every day I, I treated it like it was my first day in the major leagues. It kept me motivated, excited. Uh, it and just almost as important, it made me appreciate the paychecks every time I got a paycheck too, because that's pretty cool, especially with the <laughs> amount of money floating around baseball these well, days. Well, think about that. Now, I think Dan Michaels sent a, a, a group uh, email to Derek and me and Chase and some of the people when when Strasburg's contract dropped, and he broke it down per game, I think, or per start. It was like a million per start or twenty thousand dollars every pitch. So when you start breaking down these big numbers. You're not opposed, certainly, of guys making that money, I'd imagine, Chris, because if someone's willing to pay, certainly you're willing to earn. I, I think most people would probably have that, that theory. You didn't make what, what Rollins made or what Ryan Howard made, but you made a lot compared to what you were making for the Red Hawks, unless, Matt, some of the books were – I mean, those were – what were you making? Can you tell us what you were making for the Red Hawks in your first year? 700 700 bucks a month. A month. 700 a month. Hmm. Before taxes. <laughs> so, so, so when that was taxed and you cashed that, like $500? Yeah, I think it was direct deposit even back in those days at some point. But <laughs> no, it, but for me, I, I felt like a millionaire. And I, that's how I would dis, uh, describe it to people when I got paid even at 700 bucks a month, 350 a paycheck before taxes, right. to get paid anything to play baseball, especially the way baseball was perceived with the Red Hawks that first year. Uh, Matt talked about Jack Williams. That was an amazing environment, whether it was a preseason in those first couple of weeks, and then we moved moved into here before it was Newman. It was just the nest. And playing games here in front of a sellout crowd, it was to get paid to do that was, was pretty amazing. But, you know, with the amount of money going around baseball nowadays, how much – Money does Major League Baseball take in uh, 15, 20 billion a year? Someone's got to make some money. Someone has to. If a guy like a Garrett Cole is, you know, right now the top guy or one of the, say, top five guys in an industry that generates that much money, he deserves to be paid incredible amounts of money for that year. Now, the nine years, you could debate that. The, The amount of money per year, I would debate with anybody that he is, in fact, worth it for this coming up year, if he stays healthy, sure. things like that. Now, nine years, that's a major question mark, but someone was going to do it. The Yankees were going to do it. They can they can afford to do it. They did it with Sabathia. It was groundbreaking back then, and then Sabathia opted out and got even more money uh, after like a second or third year. So I would argue that Garrett Cole, Steven Strasburg, they are in fact worth that money uh for that particular year but when you get to the end of that contract that's where the big risk comes and and the rub is you're maybe not getting them unless there's a nine-year 
or seven year, right? Because someone else is going to do that. So you have to extend. That's that's the rub, isn't it? That's what the agent that when when Scott Boris is sitting there with Garrett Cole and he's got an Angels offer and a Yankees offer and all that. Yeah, they're looking at the dollars. I'm assuming, Chris, but they're also looking at those years. That that's the guaranteed part, and that money's guaranteed. Yeah, guaranteed. And you know, on a, on a side note, I was really hoping he was going to go to Anaheim or go to uh, to the Angels, and the reason why is. The baseball world does, in fact, know who Mike Trout is, but Mike Trout needs to play in the playoffs. He needs to be in the World Series, and I know Anthony Rendon went there, but I think Garrett Cole would have had a bigger impact on the Angels than than Anthony Rendon, and I'm one of Anthony Rendon's biggest fans, but another good position player is not enough for the Angels. They needed a, a Garrett Cole. I really, If the Dodgers can pay that kind of money, obviously the Angels can as well. Mike Trout needs to be in the playoffs. Matt, you guys have in a smaller scale because you're capped and you have X number of dollars to work with and Chris and, and, and Jim Bennett and, and all Anthony Rand's bit, all these guys that are involved in this. That's also in a smaller, much smaller scale what you guys have to go through when you build teams or retain players, right? Yeah, it's a lot less zeros. Uh, you, the decimal may, point's may, a little bit in. Decimal point's a little bit to the side. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's we would love to have everybody – that we want uh, when, when you're working under a salary cap and and the roster rules that we have with minimum amount of rookies and maximum amount of veterans that's always going to play into it major league baseball doesn't have to worry about that but i think that's also a big factor in why our league is so competitive to each other is that it's it's forcing every team not just who has the deepest pockets to try to build a team every year we're coming to you from Newman Outdoor Field. Before we break, I'm going to throw and, and uh, throw a little tease out there. Derek just showed me. I know that this is one of the things that we're talking about at the winter meetings out in San Diego, and one of them was uh, that MLB was pushing uh, for rules that requires pitchers to face at least um, three batters and uh, and or or finish a half inning. I think is the way that they put that. I believe that uh, that has now been adopted. So that that's going on. We'll, we'll touch base on that. The Houston Astros, a former team of yours, Chris, stealing signs, and not that that's a bad thing at all in baseball, as, as you probably, it's been going on since, you know, forever. But in the way that they were doing it, uh, using technology and then signaling through some type of banging on a can or what have you about location or off-speed or, or fastball. And I think, I don't think that, Derek, is we haven't seen the results in that, but we have seen the results on whether the baseballs were juiced in 2019. Derek, could you read those final that final uh, the final results? A study commissioned by Major League Baseball maintains that the baseballs weren't juiced during the record-setting 2019 you are regular not season. You are not the father, no, <laughs> Luke. I am your father. They were just flying farther. They're just flying farther. Chris, four scientists said. They're just flying farther. For every person that says <laughs> that hitter didn't know he hit a home run and it goes 20, run, 20 rows deep, I think Rob Manfred said, or not, uh, a baseball analyst said that the other day, yeah. like uh, like Tim Kirchner or someone said, uh, there's too many cases of a guy hitting a ball and he didn't even know it was gone and it goes 20, run, 20 rows deep. I would say for every one of those, there was a guy who thought he hit it 20 rows deep, That's and it right. didn't even get to the warning track. Eddie Rosario was like 10 of them. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's a good point. So I think it evens out. I remember the home run derby with Juan Gonzalez. There's a famous line from Bob Costas. My God. The balls are juiced, and the players are juiced, too. Remember that, that line? Yep, I remember okay. that line. So we're talking back to the early 90s. Yep. There has not been a year in baseball 
where people haven't been screaming the ball's juiced. It's been every, this time around, literally, and I don't use literally right. uh, very lightly. I know you don't. Literally every year, the ball's juiced. This year, we heard because we, we started hearing the seam explanation. Wasn't it the seam explanation? Tight, the right? seams and I can believe or... some of that. And the reason why I say it, because as a college coach, we our conference switched baseballs about three or four years ago from a Rawlings to a Wilson. The Wilson ball was the same size ball. The seams were noticeably smaller. And the power numbers throughout our conference for those two year, that two-year period went through the roof. We mm. led the nation in slugging that particular year. We're, we're talking were, about resistance here, right? Right. Chris? And, it, right. and uh, the St. John's coach had a study done in the balls. They went, I think, like seven or eight percent further which doesn't sound like a lot but it's significant in baseball so think about for every 300 feet you get an extra 21 feet so if the seams are in fact a little bit lower it will create the ball to go a little bit further a little bit tighter less, less drag, yeah, yeah, less things drag. Like that not and also we found when we used a a lower seam ball was the ball tended to move you'd think a higher seam ball uh the ball would move more sure. but that's it, it allows a pitcher to get a better grip with higher seams but the ball, if you know how to control the ball, a good changeup, a nasty breaking ball, uh, things like that, the lower seam tended to move more for pitchers if you knew how to pitch. Is, is baseball, we're okay, everybody okay with baseball? The Houston Astro thing, I think, raised a potential alarming. That, the, that potentially was, was uh, not integrity shattering for the game because baseball survives strikes and scandals and it's going to you know it's going to bounce it, baseball's going to When the fly. results of that officially come out please have me back cuz I'll have a million thoughts but I I'll know save you it will. I'll save it for when cuz I don't want to make any major comments until right. we have you know the exact results here's what they were or were not doing I, I mean I I have my beliefs on what they were doing cuz it's not a surprise but before I throw the Astros under the bus, which I would love to do if they, in fact, right. are cheating. And it would not be a surprise if they were. But I want to hear the exact results before yeah. we make a lot of crazy comments. You do it. agree, though, that the tipping location from uh, from just a general player-to-player would not be against... Oh, it's it, it's encouraged a lot, that's of, way, encouraged, a lot of times. Right. Like with the Phillies, there are plenty of times where runner on second base, looking at the catcher, catcher giving things away, whether it's signs or if location. If you're foolish enough to show me, absolutely, right? Yep, absolutely. And the the best who I ever played with at that kind of stuff was Chase Utley. He was amazing, and because he was so amazing at it, he assumed everybody else could do it too, which they couldn't. But he was amazing at it. So we had an all. There was times in the playoffs, or even at the end of the year, where against the Yankees, especially, where we had to give multiple signs with no one on base, and I I fought it tooth and nail. I'm like, what are they going to do? But it was like Chase Utley was so good at picking up stuff on opponents in a legal uh, right. way that he just assumed everyone else was as well. Now, this electronic stuff is a whole totally different, different story. ball of wax. Yeah. yeah. They say Steve Little. I mean, Ron Gardner credited him as the bench coach all the time. So Chase Utley is the next bench coach because that's kind of the guy who does it all, right? Just looks at tendencies, and, and that's kind of their job sometimes. Or... Yep, and you can pick things up on video. Like, nobody watched more video than Chase Utley, but the amount of times where uh, the camera would kind of creep into the dugout and he'd be up against that bat rack just staring out like in, in this glazed look out at the pitcher and he was just he was studying for any little edge that he could get in a league awake and he'd watch video right. too like not live video but like you know uh highlights or if there was sure. if john smoltz was tipping a pitch chase utley was going to find it before the first inning ended. when you homered off smoltz did you know the pitch that was coming no it was a guess but you still got to hit it 
You still, you still, I mean, I, I guess slider on that particular pitch. I guess right. It was probably not a smart guess because normally his slider, he just happened to throw the one bad slider in his entire career. <laughs> so he took it out of the park. Yeah, it wasn't. And the problem with guessing though is sometimes you guess right and you take advantage of it. It makes you want to guess more often, and over time, guessing just doesn't. I know you, Chris Ghost didn't fear. You, I'm sure you didn't fear anything when you played because you're confident. But, but you know, Randy Johnson would put a lot of fear into people. You ever face a pitcher that had that? Bob Gibson, Maury, would tell yeah. you stories about if you're digging, he would yell, you just keep digging, buddy, you know, if you're digging in at home plate. Did you fear anybody in that in that vein? Not in the major leagues. The only, the only time I was ever, like, that way when I stepped to the plate was right out here in 2008 against Isla Borders when she pitched for Duluth. 60 minutes was in the stands, and five weeks that's, later I'm watching myself on Sunday at 7 p.m. striking out to a girl. It was great. That's right. That's <laughs> Boy, you talk about the history. Next year is 25th anniversary for Red Hawks. You rem- Derek, you remember that whole oh. – that was a wild scene that transcended just a baseball game. That was. I remember being in Duluth before you guys took the field and walking in, in, in kind of the back area of that Wade Stadium, and Isla was there pacing because she couldn't dress – in the locker room, and then it was the whole thing, and this is a guy's sport, and what's a woman doing this? And it just, that was a wild, that was back 90. Mm, 1998. Well, she played before that, but 1998 was when she would have pitched against. Did I say 2008? Yeah. I meant 1998. Yeah. 2008, it, you, were, you were playing. That was World Series. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. It was a little yeah, different. Yeah, 1998, which we also won the Northern League title that year, too. But it was it was 1998. It was a little bit later in the year. It was her first official start because she came out of the bullpen, and she was fierce. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that she was this uh, – obviously big physically imposing figure but right. it was she was incredibly competitive and and to be honest with you if there was someone that was going to strike out to a girl and could handle it it was me right. i ended up striking out twice actually uh, <laughs> but so i mean i was fine with it but at the same time i didn't i didn't want to because i knew the striking out to a girl wasn't the issue it was knowing that it was going to be on 60 minutes in those days the one of the highest rated shows on a sunday night well, and I, I remember talking to Not after that. I think he did too. And, and he, well, she found yes, a few guys, and a yeah, lot of guys it, were topping balls over that were yeah out in front. But it goes to, and I thought about this a lot when you know when Rick Anderson took over as pitching coach of the Twins, and they you know they were changing speeds all the time. And you talk about Radke and Santana. I mean, that's what they were all about. And you're guess, you talk about guessing. Everyone was guessing speeds then, and that's what she was, right? I mean, you're going from normally seeing at the low end 79 to the high end 95 and then you, all of a sudden you throw oh, a 63 uh, uh, in there De- and you're trying to get that timing down to Derek's question would you rather face randy johnson 11 times in a season or greg maddox once i would rather face greg maddox greg the well, way you would greg, oh, see, no, i thought see, you'd say the more the, i see randy way, johnson the- no, the way that Greg Maddox pitched was kind of uh, benefited me. Same with like a Tom Glavin. The, the Randy Johnsons, the long arm, throw hard a little bit, conveniently wild. He, when he was younger, he was really wild. As he got better, Cy Young stuff, he had more control, but he was still conveniently wild. I struggle with guys like that. Huh. But the Greg Maddoxes that I knew were going to be around the strike zone. Now, the Greg Maddox who got eight inches off the plate, I didn't want to face <laughs> that guy. You're down 0-2. You are now struck out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for stopping by, Coach. You're good to see you, buddy. 